So we're nearing the halfway point in Exodus, 40 chapters. Um, Let me just give you a a quick update on where we're going. So we'll walk through chapter 17 this morning, 18 next week, 19 the week after that. And then when we get to chapter 20, I'm going to do 10 individual sermons on the Ten Commandments. And that'll bring us to the second half, and then we'll probably speed up our pace a bit. Um, so we'll still be in Exodus several more months, but after that, who knows where we're going to be? John. Good, John. Yeah, John's gospel. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. But there's still a lot to cover in Exodus. Exodus 17, drink the water. Now, <laughs> I guess in a church setting, you to be careful saying that. Uh, but you know what I'm talking about. Who is the living water? Who satisfies our souls? Christ. Take him in, right? Last week was eat the bread. This week, drink the water. The big idea, God is our substitute and the source of eternal life. There's something in this passage, I'm curious whether or not you've noticed it before, um, but it's pretty incredible. And so, keep a close eye on the text. Um, Let me start with this question. Who's ever been refreshed by a cold Icy glass of water or lemonade on a hot summer day. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you're outside working, maybe in the garden, or you're, you're playing. Maybe, maybe you're playing soccer or baseball, but it's hot, and you're thirsty, and you find that cup of water, and you take that big sip, and you're just, oh, right? It's nice. Ramsey, you remember about 15 years ago, we did that 20-mile hike, so Matt Ramsey and I have done, a, he's a member here, we've done a couple of hikes, we've known each other for many years, um, best man in my wedding, good to see you bro. We did a 20 mile hike, I don't know man, it was like 15 years ago at least, maybe longer, about 15 years ago, and I guess we just weren't super well prepared, so you know, we took some water, it was a hot East Texas summer day, about 100 degrees, and we got about two thirds of the way through and we were out of water. And I was struggling, man. I think we both were. We're covered in ticks, which is added to it. So we're covered in ticks. We're famished. We're thirsty. And we finally make it back to our vehicles. And we race to the convenience store. And then we went to Ray's West because we were just hungry, man. But I remember getting like one of those big, I think I had two of them, those 32-ounce Gatorades, right? And I think I just bit the lid off. It was crazy. Superhuman strength. And I just, I think both of them, didn't I? And maybe a third with my left foot, just drinking that Gatorade, guzzling it down, and oh, it was so nice. Christ is like that, but infinitely more so. Amen? I hope we saw this last week. We're going to see it again this morning. The Lord's provision of the physical needs of the people of Israel was a pointer to the fact that he was the greater provision for their spiritual need, namely, their salvation. God is the source of eternal life. So drink the water. Drink the water. As mentioned last week, I came back to this last week, God's provision of water and bread, and we would call these just the necessary essentials for daily life. We need water, we need bread. His provision of those things was meant to teach Israel to be satisfied 
in the Lord. What we're going to see in our passage is really two halves. So the first half is Exodus 17, 1-7, water from the rock. So if you're taking notes, that's the first section, water from the rock. Verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. Now this phrase is really important, according to the commandment of the Lord. So who's leading this thing? Who's in charge? Who's in control? The Lord. Encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So the journey to the mountain of God continues in fulfillment of God's promise. God promised to rescue his people for worship. And that's all the way back in Exodus 3.12. He said, but I will be with you and This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people of Egypt out. I'm sorry, the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. So this is proleptic. It's a preview back in chapter 3. God reveals himself to Moses, burning bush. Uh, He reveals his rescue plan. You'll know that I'm who I claim to be. You'll know that I've done what I said I would do when the people are back at what? The mountain worshiping me. And I'll be with you, but you're going to serve God on this mountain And we're almost there, by the way. Again, the phrase, according to the commandment of the Lord, God is in control, God is sovereign, he's leading his people. Exodus 13, 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Now, because God is in control, this is really important. Because, I mean, does God make mistakes? I mean, didn't God make everything? Why bring them to an area where there's no water? Do you think God just forgot? No, God doesn't forget. (laughs) Because God's in control, it's safe to assume that he led them to a place where he knew there was no water. Why? Recall Exodus 16.4, that I may test them. God allows things in our lives, at times difficult things, to test our faith, and our obedience. This is James 1, 2, and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or steadfastness. This represents, what we just read, represents the third instance during Israel's journey through the desert where God provides miraculously. So again, God's track record up to this point, when there's a need, what does he do? He provides. And so, Israel, (laughs) they should expect what? Provision. Rephidim. This is the last stop before Mount Sinai. And again, God promised, hey, I'm going to bring you to this mountain. You're going to worship me. I'm going to rescue you for worship. So this is the last stop before Rephidim when Israel received the Ten Commandments. So again, what's the situation? What's the problem? The text says, but there was no water for the people to drink. Man, they're in the desert. It's hot. What are they? What would you be? Right now, maybe you're thirsty. They were thirsty. You need water. We need water to survive. We, we uh, as a family, we like to watch Man vs. Wild, right? Bear Grylls. And so we're out in the woods, the boys. Dad, would you eat that to survive? I'm like, that's tree bark, buddy. Yeah. I don't think I would eat that. I don't think it's going to help my, my case at all. And there's like, you know, a creek. Would you drink that water, Dad? Man, I'd probably get really sick. I don't know, bud. 
And then they'll ask questions like, well, hey, if you had to choose one, no water, no food. I'm like, well, man, no water. I mean, no food because, you know, I can survive without food for a couple weeks, but no water. How long? Three days. And then you're done. If you live in Boston, you're you're done-ski. We're not in Boston, so I'm not sure why I said that. My mom's in Boston right now visiting my sister. Not sure you want to know that either. All right. How did God respond? Uh, Again, there's no water to drink, verses 2 and 3. How did God's people respond? Did they trust the Lord? Did they pray? Did they say, hey, surely God's going to provide. He's got a perfect track record thus far. No, what does the text say? Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled. Now, again, this is a pattern. Get ready. The people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? What's Moses' point in verse 2? He's saying, to quarrel with me is to quarrel with God. Moses is simply the messenger. God is leading this thing. We just saw that. And Moses sees their response as an attempt to test God. Is that wise? No. Interesting side note here. The verb to test in Hebrew can mean to take legal action against. They are bringing a charge against Moses and really against God. They're putting God on trial. Whoa. Smart move? Definitely not. What does it mean to test God here? It's really an attempt to manipulate God. Doug Stewart writes, Testing God is demanding or expecting him to do something special for you, something you haven't earned and don't per se deserve. And I think many of us approach the gospel this way. God, listen, this week I didn't sin. I read my Bible five out of seven days. You owe me, God. I deserve this, A, B, or C, whatever it is. Is that the gospel? What do we deserve? If we got what we deserved, what would we get? And not just for a weekend, we'd get hell forever. What do they not understand? They don't understand the God of grace. Stuart goes on to say that testing God involves some degree of doubt. In putting God to the test, they were allowing, this is really important, their circumstances to determine their response rather than God's character. A God who has already proven himself time and time again as gracious and generous. Amen? But they were circumstance-driven, not character-of-God-driven. Again, what's the problem with Israel? They're testing God's faithfulness. It's the faithless declaration, prove it, after multiple proofs of his power and provision. Do you find this strange? But don't we do it as well? We do it all the time, don't we? How do we... God, I just don't know if you love me. I don't know, I mean... How could you? How could he? What is the ultimate proof, the rock-solid proof of God's love? The cross. How dare we doubt God's love for us? How dare we doubt the fact that God is for his people? How do we know he's for his people? What are the means of grace he's given us? He's given us the church. He's given us his spirit. He gives us the word. And yet, what do we doubt time and time again? That he's for us and that he loves us. Friends, let's not be fools. Amen? 
Again, the problem with Israel, they are motivated, they are moved by their circumstances rather than belief or trust in God's character. And let's just, I'll give you a moment. What has God demonstrated about his character up to this point? What kind of God is he? He's gracious. He's what? He's faithful. He's kind. He's a good God. How quickly they forget God's gracious provision on their behalf. And again, the question is, is this true of us today? How often when faced with a difficult circumstance, a difficult situation, do you find yourself trusting in God's character? Are you typically found trusting, that's one response, or complaining against God? Are you circumstance-driven or faith-driven? I'm not, listen, when I say that, I'm not referencing, what's his name, Rick Warren. I'm just saying, are you, are you more driven by your circumstances, or are you more driven by what you know to be true about the God of the Bible? Well, if you know your Bible, you should know what's true about the God of the Bible, and what kind of God is he? He's good, he's faithful, he's just, he's loving, he's kind. Again, if things don't go your way, do you erupt in anger or do you take it to God in prayer? Because you know that God is sovereign and good and will give you everything you need to face adversity. I was talking with a brother this week about this and I was so encouraged by Paul's words in Philippians 4. I have learned... I have learned the secret of contentment. Does that mean that Paul just figured it out overnight? No, he's learned it. What does that denote? A process, right? So this is something, friends, that we learn. We learn to face adversity well. We learn to be content in Christ. This is part of our sanctification. Amen? Well, the character of the children of Israel is further brought to light. Again, there's a consistent pattern, and it's become visible. I hope you've been paying attention. Following divine, here's the pattern if you're taking notes, following divine intervention and provision, once faced with an obstacle, the people respond, Israel responds not in trusting faith, but with a lack of trust and complaining. So again, and, and this is what's so interesting, God shows himself faithful, he reveals himself in a mighty way. They have that. God shows up in time and space in a majestic way, he reveals his glory But then what happens? Difficult circumstances, and rather than trusting the Lord for this, what do they do? They throw up their hands. They grumble. They complain. No faith. Notice how quickly things have changed since chapter 14 of Exodus. How did chapter 14 end? Verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Well, this response was short-lived. Well, how does Moses respond? This is interesting. This is important. There is this juxtaposition between Moses and the people of Israel. Verse 4. So Moses complained? No. Moses cried to who? Moses cried to the Lord. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Moses represents the opposite of the children of Israel in that when faced with a difficult situation, he looks to the... He looks to the Lord. And again, we should learn from Moses' example here. When the going gets tough, what? Don't say it. <laughs> the tough get going? Question mark? No. When the going gets tough, look to the Lord in prayer. Amen? Look to the Lord in prayer. Here's God's response. Now, 
Listen, if you need to stand up for a moment, if you need to just don't miss this. This is going to rock your world. Heads may explode this morning in a good way. This is going to be something that you got. I mean, guys, again, my hope, our hope when we gather under the word of God is that we would be wowed by God. Amen? We want to be so in awe of the beauty, the majesty, and again, properly used, the awesomeness of God as revealed in his word. This is so good. So here we go. Here's God's response. Now, just pay attention here. Verses 5 and 6. Power stance. Just kidding. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people. Okay. Why the separation? What are you expecting right now? Grumbling, complaining. What does that invite? What does it deserve? It starts with P, ends with punishment. Punishment. I was hoping someone would just say it. Punishment, of course. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Kind of make some space. A little more. A little more. I'm a big God. A little more. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Are you expecting what I'm expecting right now? Somebody about to get struck down. Behold, and here it is. This is the surprise of the text. Please pay attention. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock? And water shall come out of it? And the people will drink? What? And Moses did so in the sight of of the elders of Israel. What does this image seem to prepare us for? Again, namely the separation between Moses and some of the elders and the people. Judgment! Judgment! It's almost like God is telling Moses, hey, Moses, take some of the elders and just move back a little more. I don't want you guys to be collateral damage because it's about to get hot and heavy right now. I'm about to rain it down. That is what we're expecting. We're expecting punishment. Is it deserved? Yes. But what happens? Something remarkable happens. Something unexpected, especially given Israel's response to God. Have they trusted God? Have they trusted in God's servant? No. I'm afraid if we're not wowed by this, something's wrong with our hearts. If we become callous to the grace of God, I mean, guys, verse 6, this is the key. Again, the context is one of judgment. How so? Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Who's speaking here? Who's I? This is the Lord. Now, pay attention. I, I'm, not trying, I'm not belittling. This is, just, this is really good, and I don't want us to miss it. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall, what? Strike the rock. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Not God's wrath. That's what they deserve. That's what we deserve to drink God's wrath. But one has come to drink that wrath for us. Amen? And that is foreshadowed here. Okay. If you're taking notes, write this down. Three things. How many? Three things or evidences that what we have here is a courtroom scene. One of judgment. If you're taking notes, you can put a staff. It's the first evidence that this is a courtroom scene. Scene, one of judgment. A staff in the ancient world was a tool of judgment, often used in floggings, 
Have I been flogged? Good, okay. When you see, if I drew a picture, okay, what's that game? Um, when I make, is it, no, not Pictionary, what's the other one? Charades, goodness gracious, charades. Okay, what am I? I, I spoke, so I ruined it, but what is this tool? I'm a, I'm a judge, that was a gavel, I'm terrible. You never want me on your team. You see that tool, you see a gavel in someone's hand, what do you assume? That person is likely a, a judge. Okay, so the staff was a tool of judgment. Maybe you're not sold. Well, B. B's going to get you. We have the language of God in the dock. It's very British. God on trial. God on trial. I will stand there before you. This is the only place in the Bible. Minus the events preceding the cross where God stands before man. What is happening here? God is authorizing Moses to be the judge. Who has the tool of judgment? Who has the staff? Moses. Moses is the judge. The elders are the grand jury. And the people, right? The people of Israel are the audience. God, now this is it. Don't miss it. God is taking the place of the accused in the courtroom setting. God is on the docks. The accused stands before the accuser. This is remarkable, but it shouldn't surprise us. Why? What does it get us ready for? The cross. This is one of the clearest pointers to the cross in the Old Testament. And then what happens? God symbolically stands in the place of judgment on behalf of sinful Israel. And then see, here it is. We got the staff. We got the the tool of judgment. We got God on trial, B. And then C, what is Moses commanded to do? Are you ready? Strike the rock. God is receiving in himself the judgment that they deserve. Here we have foreshadowed the judgment, what? I mean, what does this remind us of? Who would receive our judgment in our place? Here we have foreshadowed the death of God. God would die. God would die in place of sinners. This is the substitutionary atonement of Christ foreshadowed. Is this the only place? Oh, friends, no. The gospel is everywhere in the Old Testament. Let's go back to Genesis. Let me just take you on a little journey on a magic carpet ride. Genesis 3.15. This is following the curse. This is the fall curses. Now, this is called the Proto-Evangelium. This is the first pronouncement of the gospel following the fall. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the one who's going to bring victory, who's going to defeat evil, is going to be bruised in our place. Who's that? Christ. Now, maybe that wasn't clear enough. If you go to Genesis 15, are you still with me? Are you guys not wowed by this? God stands in the place of Israel. Who deserved to get struck? Israel. Who stands at the rock and says, strike me in their place? God. Are you kidding me? Genesis 15, I added this this morning. Genesis 15, this is after the Abrahamic covenant, right? God's going to bless Abraham. He's going to bless him with many children. And then, of course, you go back to Genesis 12, 3. Through Abraham's offspring, all the nations, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. 
and then we have this covenant ceremony. Some animals are killed, they're cut in two, there's a pathway, and typically in the ancient Near East, when two kings would make a covenant, they'd kill some animals, they'd make a little pathway, they'd cut the pieces in two, and then they would join arms and walk through the pathway. You know what that meant? If either one of us breaks this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to us. That's pretty hardcore, right? Now, when God walks through the pieces in Genesis 15, what's Abraham doing? Homeboy snoozing. What is God saying? I got this. I'm going to do it for you. Whoa. And then we move on to Isaiah 53.5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Whose? Whose transgressions? His? No, ours. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his stripes we are healed. Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Well, who's going to be pierced? Christ. Zechariah 13.7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. There's a collection of essays by C.S. Lewis. I have this in my office. It's called God on the Dock. And again, that means God on trial. God on trial. That's God on trial. We know God is the judge, but what do we do? We put God on trial. We're just like Israel. This title suggests, that the title that Lewis gave this, this collection of essays, suggests that human beings, rather than viewing themselves as standing before God in judgment, prefer to place God on trial while we act as judge. We'll decide if he's real or not. We'll decide if he's worthy to be followed and worshipped. That's so upside down. Well, God did stand trial for us in Christ Jesus. And he did more than that, amen? He did more than that. God's Ultimate love for us is seen in his willingness to not only stand trial, but to take the sentence of death in our place for our sinfulness. Now, throughout Exodus, up to this point, we have seen God's amazing provision. But not like this. This is unique, what we're seeing this morning. Nothing like this so far. What have we seen thus far? Well, he's delivered his people from the unjust, cruel rule of Egypt. That was big, amen? Parts of the Red Sea. There was the series of plagues, of course, the Passover lamb. God provided a substitution there. After that, we saw this last week, and again today, he's provided food, now water. He continues to protect his people. We're going to see that today with the Amalekites. But here, in Exodus 17, he provides himself as a substitute for his people. Who deserves judgment? Israel. Who receives it in their place? God. And it points us to what? The, the cross. Amen? Again, but in standing before his people on the rock, God demonstrates something else. And I hope you caught it. When Moses strikes the rock, God, what comes out? Water. What does this signify? God is the source of blessing. From the rock, which is to be identified as God's presence, most likely the pillar of cloud, would come life 
life-giving sustenance. It was a source of blessing. God is the source of blessing. But how does her first half end? On a positive note, no. On a negative note, as it concerns God's people. Verse 7, And he called the name of the place Massah, testing, and Meribah, quarreling, fighting, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because, here it is, they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Face slap. What? The question. Now, this is why context is so important. Is the Lord with them or not? How will he answer that question? What happens next? What happens next? These raiders, this semi-nomadic people come in. They're basically land pirates. That's not good. They see this wandering nation as maybe easy prey. We're going to steal their goods. Does God provide? Does he always provide? So the question, is the Lord among us or not? A resounding what? Yes. Yes. And that brings us to the second half. The Amalekites defeated. Exodus 17, 8-16. So, so far God has demonstrated his gracious provision of food and water in the desert. You need these things to survive. In this section, he would provide, he would demonstrate what? He's not just going to provide food and water. He's going to fight for his people. He's going to fight for his people. So what's the situation? Verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. The Amalekites, they were desert dwellers, kind of south of Canaan, land pirates. I kind of like that description. They were raiders, raiders. And again, I think they see... Uh, Israel as easy prey. We're going to take what they have. We're going to peace out. <laughs> well, what's Moses' response? Verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And if you're one that likes to write in your Bible, underline that, right? The staff of God in my hand. Now, the battle unfolds, and it's pretty quick, But the battle unfolds in the following verses, and the outcome, the outcome of the battle hinges on one thing. And what is that? Moses' commitment to keeping the staff of God raised. If it's lowered, what happens? They start to lose, but as long as it's raised up, they are victorious. Well, God's victorious. Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. What's going on here? The emphasis is on the staff, and it's whose staff? It's the staff of God, right? That's verse 9. So the emphasis is on the staff of God in Moses' hands. Is it magical? No. It's symbolic. It's representative of God's power. As one scholar writes, the staff is an authenticating symbol of Yahweh's powerful presence. The staff of God symbolizes God's powerful presence with Israel. Guys, how many times thus far has God revealed himself visibly to his people? We can go back to chapter 3, burning bush, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, the staff. What does God want his people to know? I am I'm with you. I'm with you. Exodus 4, 2-5. to 
The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. Scaredy cat. I'm just kidding. I would have ran too. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, has appeared to you. Exodus 7.17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff... That is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Exodus fourteen sixteen. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. What does raised hands symbolize? Surrender or yes or help. Help. Moses' raised hands signaled his appeal to God for help. Yes, surrender. Yes, worship. But help. The raised staff served as an acknowledgement of God's role in the battle. Who wins the battle? Who's the hero of Scripture? God. He was the one fighting on behalf of his people. Only he could give them victory. And this is what's interesting. The true battle took place on the hill, not the battleground, not the battlefield. The true battle took place on the hill. So the the raised staff would have served, it would have functioned as a visible reminder to God's people that the victory belonged to God. He gets the glory for the victory. Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to to the Lord. That's Proverbs 21, 31. Proverbs 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Again, victory belongs to the, belongs to the Lord. He gets the glory. He fights for his people. And, and again, what is the ultimate example, the, the paradigmatic example of God fighting for his people where? What battle could we not fight? We weren't even able to fight this battle. We weren't equipped to fight this battle. What battle did he fight for us? The perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the glorious resurrection. He fought the battle, winning our salvation by giving his life for us. Amen? Oh, man. I often say that Jesus came not to wield the sword, but to take the sword. And through that sacrifice, we have victory. We have freedom from sin. We have forgiveness. We can call God friend. Verses 13 and 14 We have victory remembered. Verses 13 and 14, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. The Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Why a memorial? This is a constant theme in Scripture. Significant event happens. Set up a memorial. Write it down. Why? So that God's people won't forget. This powerful event God's victory on behalf of his people was to be retold and celebrated by future generations. It was a faith builder. Amen? It was a faith builder and declaration of God's saving power and goodness to future generations. And again, not only was the story, the event to be written down, but an altar was to be constructed and called the Lord is my, Lord is my banner. Again, the purpose was to perpetuate the memory of God's victory on behalf of his people. Here's here's the, the moral of the story. Here's the principle. 
don't forget what the Lord has done. Why do we gather every Lord's Day? So that we won't forget what the Lord has done. And what has the Lord done for us? Everything. Amen? He saved us. A bunch of worms. We deserve wrath, just like Israel, but God in His grace is our substitute. He laid His life down. He took the punishment. He bore the wrath so that sinners like us could be forgiven and reconciled to Him forever. How long? Forever. Let me ask some questions really fast. This is rapid fire. Number one, what does this passage teach us about God's character? God provides for His people, number one. Number two, God is our gracious substitute. Oh, was that cool or what? Did you guys get that? Do I need to tell it again? I mean, were you not wowed by that? If you, that this passage, especially the first six verses, it's a passage of expectation. They grumble, they complain. God says, hey Moses, take some of the elders and separate. And again, I'm, I'm thinking, if I'm reading this for the first time, God is about to rain down fire doesn't want Moses and the elders to be collateral damage. But he goes to the rock on their behalf and tells Moses to strike the rock and then gives them water, grace upon grace, all up in your face. Number three, God fights on behalf of his people. Number four, God is powerful. Number five, God is worthy to be remembered and worshipped. Why do we gather, church, to remember and to worship in what we remember. What God has done through Jesus is grounds for this. Amen? In eternity of this. Number two, what does this passage teach us about humanity? Number one, we're sinful. Number two, we often forget God's provision. Like Israel, we are circumstance-based rather than God, His character-based. Number three, We too often allow our circumstances to dictate our response rather than God's character. Number four, we desperately need a a substitute. Oh, man, come on. Who is our substitute? Who stepped in for us? God did. Last question is this. How does this passage point us to Jesus Christ? All right. Exodus 17, I hope you caught it. I hope you grasped it. I hope it grasped you. Exodus 17 is a preview of God's substituting work on our behalf in Jesus. So in Christ, we find our our substitute. Jesus would take our place as an object, the object of God's wrath. Remember Isaiah 53.5? He was pierced, he was crushed for his sin, for his transgression, for his iniquities, no, for ours. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He took it. I love Mark 10, 45. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we saw last week in John 6, Jesus says, I am the the bread of life. It's 635. I'm the bread of life. Take me in. Eat me, right? Take me in. And we do that by faith. As Calvin said, faith is the spoon by which we take in Jesus. And Jesus provides eternal sustenance, right? Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes me will never thirst, Jesus says in verse 35. 
And then, in John 4, Jesus proclaims himself to be the source of living water. Remember the Samaritan woman? What does Jesus say? Hey, drink this water and you'll never thirst again. I want that water, right? Give me some of that water now. What is Jesus saying? Exactly what he said in chapter 635. You take me in and I'll satisfy you. I'll fulfill you forever because what is our greatest need? What is our deepest longing? Reconciliation to God. And only Jesus can provide that. Amen? Only Jesus can satisfy that deep, eternal longing of our soul. And he has. And this is what's cool. Do you recall what I said last week? <clears throat> this was actually last week. I talked about it. But when we kicked off this series, what does Isaiah look forward to? A new... Say it again. Thank you, Cody. A new exodus. There's going to be a greater exodus. What God did in the past, he's going to do in a much greater way in the future. And who would bring that about? Jesus. So, I mean, come on, guys. You hear this language in chapter 4 of John? So we're going to John next, by the way. Okay, John 4, John 6, John 7. It's exodus language. Jesus is reenacting the exodus, preparing us for the greater exodus to come. John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's a wonderful promise, amen? And it's found in Jesus. And then John 7, I mentioned this just now, but let me read it. John 7, 37, 38, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoa! Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus' actions, Jesus' words in the Gospels declare the reality of the time in him has come about the new or second exodus, a new rescue. Jesus is the greater bread. Jesus is the greater water. Drink him up. Drink him up. Now, this is probably the passage most of you are expecting. We'll get ready. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Here it is. For they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was... Christ. Whoa! (laughs) Christ in the Old Testament, amen? Paul clearly has the Exodus in mind here. And for our purposes, Exodus 17, verse 4, the rock in Exodus 17 points to Christ both as our substitute and source of blessing. This is an example of a Christophany. A visible appearance of Christ, of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God in the Old Testament. Christ the Lord was with his people, and he stepped in for his people. And from Christ flows eternal blessings. Christ is the source of eternal blessing. Who wants eternal blessing? Four of you. That is crazy. You do, sweetie. Yes. And what is the blessing? Life with God forever. Amen? And it's found in Jesus. 
in Jesus. Again, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And as we saw in our passage, Christ goes to battle. The Lord goes to battle on behalf of his people. And this too points to the cross. Colossians 2, 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The demonic powers were defeated at the cross. The evil one, right? Satan means accuser, Satan in Hebrew. Satan can no longer bring charges against God's people if they have Christ as their representative. Amen? Christ fights for us. I do have one more question. How might we apply this passage in our own lives? Number one, acknowledge your need for a substitute and a Savior. Number two, repent and believe in Jesus. Number three, trust in the Lord's provision. And number four, remember and proclaim his saving work. And again, this happens through our gathering together every Lord's Day and through our evangelism. Do you remember those old Gatorade commercials, Quench Your Thirst? You got all these like big sweaty dudes playing basketball. That does not make me thirsty. It makes me want to throw up, right? If you've ever seen me sweat, Aaron has, it's disgusting. Man, I raise my hand and just start spraying. It's terrible. But the point of the commercial is this, right? I mean, I guess we can empathize with that. We live in East Texas. You're outside working. You're thirsty. You're hot. You're sweaty. And you want what? Something cold, something wet. I love water. Or Gatorade's good, too. But listen, all of us, we long to be satisfied. And only one thing, one, can satisfy us spiritually and eternally. Who or what can quench our thirst, friends? Who alone can bring us back to God? Who alone can bring us from objects of God's wrath to children of the King? Only Jesus can. Drink that water. Take him in. He lived the life we could not live. God demands perfection. God demands holiness. Raise your hand if you've fallen short of that. All of us have. When the Bible says that our debt has been paid, it's that debt of perfection. Jesus paid it. But because all of us have fallen short, we deserve God's wrath. Jesus took care of that as well at the cross. And then to prove that what he did worked and that all his claims were true, he came back alive three days later. And the Bible says if you trust in him, you can be forgiven and have forever life with God. You can be quenched forever in Jesus. Amen? So, hey, listen, that makes me want to do two things. Here are the two challenges. Worship with God's people. We're doing that today. And go out and tell others. Amen? So that they too can be satisfied in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your character on display through your saving work. God, in your word in Exodus 17, we see that you are gracious and merciful. We see that you are sovereign and powerful. We see that you are generous and good. And I pray that our response would be one of worship and awe and obedience. For those of us who have trusted in King Jesus, our substitute, that we would now go out and tell others the good news so that they too can hear the gospel and by your grace, And by the work of the Spirit, trust in Jesus and turn from sin. Father, help us to be a church known for faithfully gathering together to recall and remember who you are and what you've done. And may we be a church known for mobilizing together, going both near and far, armed with the gospel of truth, 
proclaiming it joyfully and boldly so that our unsafe friends and family members and neighbors, classmates and coworkers can hear the gospel and by your grace turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Father, we commit this time to you. Take what we heard, apply it to our hearts, and may we love Jesus more, our worthy King. In his name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.